Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to celebrate and honor the profound meaning and mystery of marriage. And the God who dreamt it up has much to say to those who are called to live as husband and wife. Some variation of what I just said is how I have begun most every wedding I've ever performed, and I decided to dress the part this morning. Someone asked when I came in, is someone getting married? And I said, that or someone's dying. So um, if it happens, you have a pastor who's dressed for the part if, uh, if either of those need to happen. Uh, let me invite you to open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes 12 this morning and to pull out your sermon notes. Gamophobia is the fear of getting married. It is marked by sustained, intense panic and fear of marriage and commitment. Why on earth are you getting married? This is the question that my coworkers at a bank I used to work at asked me. And I was working in a bank at the time with all women. And one woman who asked me that had a husband who frequented strip clubs and promised he wouldn't touch, but that he would go and do that with his friends. Another was married to a very mean bully who uh, didn't physically but verbally abused his wife. And another one got married young and dumb and divorced and was dating deadbeat guys. All these women who asked me when I was engaged at the age of 22 were trying to be good friends to me. They were trying to spare me what they had uh, already lived through and were living through. None of them were Christians. People get married for all the wrong reasons. It's a great question, why do you want to get married, isn't it? You know, even more pervasive and popular is the universal desire to get marriage even than World Cup soccer, right? And when you move on to the question of why do you want to get married, many people struggle to answer that. In fact, beneath the question of why get married are a host of other questions. How do you know you've met the right person? How can you know it will last? Will I end up married but miserable? Will I have what it takes? Will my spouse have what it takes? Is my past overcomable? What is it that you are afraid of? Married, divorced, or contemplating marriage... We all have fears. And love and marriage is filled with what ifs. What if I get bored? What if we fall out of love? What if I don't have enough money? What if I get dumped? What if I end up like my parents? What if I don't end up like my parents? If if your parents have something to model after. Here's one more what if for you. What if... We are afraid of all the wrong things. Pessimism and skepticism seem to be on the lips of many, many people that I talk to regarding marriage. And if it's on the lips of someone, it means it's in the heart of someone. Listen to the fears and sort of the solutions that are arrived at by some of these celebrities. Chris Rock said this, you can be single or lonely or married and bored. What is the fear being expressed? There's no good option. 
right? Here's another one. Katy Perry said, first and foremost, self-love and then give love away. Amy Poehler, an actress, says this, kind of captures uh, some of the ups and downs of, of being in love. Being in love is the worst. I mean, it's the best. But it's so hard and scary to open your heart to someone. But the point is, vulnerability is the key to happiness. If you're keeping up with Kim, she says this, I think you have different soulmates throughout your life, that your soul needs different things at different times. And Albert Einstein, who was smart in many areas of life, not sure how he did with relationships, but he said this, men marry women with the hope that they will never change. Women marry men with the hope that they will change. Invariably, they are both disappointed. People fear the wrong things. I want you to consider Solomon for a moment, who had fame, wealth, and wisdom that far exceeded everyone I just mentioned combined. And he wrote this in Ecclesiastes 12, 13. You can read it for yourself in your Bible, lest I am making this up. He says, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Fear God and keep his commandments. Church, I ask you, where is the fear of God in marital relationships, in dating relationships? Where is the concern over whether we are carefully keeping the commands of the Almighty as we contemplate love and marriage? How often do you uh, hear people even consider final judgment when discussing relationship advice? It seems absent to me. People fear the wrong things, and Christians are not exempt from, from this. Consider this reality. You are going to exist forever. So when you take our life, remember our life is but a sneeze, right? It's a whisper. There's sort of a puff of air. It's a misbreath on a cold day, and then it vanishes. That's our life. So how foolish it is to live for that mist and not plan and live for the greater reward. This is something akin to that couple that invests All of their engagement energy, planning and perfecting a one-hour marriage ceremony to the neglect of planning and preparing for a lifelong marriage. The one-hour ceremony is over. The first couple days of the honeymoon, you discuss how it went. And then you realize months has gone into a ceremony. It's over. It's been discussed to death. Now what? Maybe this is why people sometimes have a nagging sense on their honeymoon. Oh no. I've made a huge mistake. Don't invest for the one hour ceremony, friends. Invest for the lifelong marriage. Here's what I'm pleading with you today. I am pleading with you to listen attentively to myself and others for these next seven weeks and then evaluate what is being said and 
make your decision from there. There's going to be a lot of scripture read, and no matter who delivers it, no matter how imperfectly it is delivered, those are the principles, those are the things that will not change. Let me pray. Father in heaven, you are good and glorious and enthroned in unapproachable light right now. The God that we have been singing to, the God that we turn our attention to, the God with whom we're speaking right now, you are just and holy and approachable because you've made yourself approachable through Jesus. God, I pray that you would give us hearts to follow your will, eyes to see, and ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. We've been very purposeful at this church to say no to the trivial many so that we can say yes to the vital few. Our whole heading series that talks about our vision says that family is one of those vital few. That we are committed to live as a family, as the Bible calls us to, and we are committed to lift up and support the family. The title for this series is called Marriage Reflection. Why is it called that? It's called that for a few reasons. Here's number one. It's called Marriage Reflection because we have a clear picture of what our marriages are to be. That there's this way bigger meaning to it than our own happiness, than our own circumstances, than our own love story going on. It is a picture of Jesus' husband, the church as the bride. So here's the big picture. When you are building a puzzle and you are confused as to how pieces fit, you go back to the cover of the puzzle. You look at the box top and you say, what is the picture I'm building again? Oh, that's right. So when we get lost in marriage, when we get lost in our relationship, we come back to the picture we are designed to reflect. That's why it's called marriage reflection. This is a profound mystery, Paul says, and it's worth pondering long and well on. It's called marriage reflection because of this. The idea of reflection is that we're going to invest time thinking carefully about marriage because it is so central. And catch this, God's picture of marriage, God's instruction for marriage is so counterintuitive to the flesh that we have to remind ourselves over and over and over again. Interestingly, if you use Apple's dictionary definition and you look up the word reflection, the two things that are used as sort of the example sentences have to do with marriage and family. It's worth pausing and thinking carefully about marriage. It's worth pausing and thinking about the family. It's called marriage reflection for a third reason, and that is this. Like it or not, your deepest Beliefs, your most intimate fears and dreams come pouring out of your marriage. Your marriage is a mirror and this series will expose where your security lies. It will expose what you believe will bring you true happiness and it will expose what priorities you have in life. Not what you say you believe, not what you say is going to bring you happiness, not what you say your priorities are. Your marriage oozes your theology. It's just a fact of life. Look at the word holy matrimony in our title. 
Holy matrimony is what we're discussing. And it's worth saying at the very start of this series to give a definition of what I'm talking about when I use the word marriage. I am using God's formula of one man plus one woman for all time. That's God's best and that's God's picture of marriage. Holy means set apart for God. It's set apart for special use. It's set apart to worship God. Your marriage is set apart to worship God. Matrimony is a word that simply means marriage. It's the distinct covenant relationship that's different from all other relationships. There's something really interesting built into the word marriage that by definition requires God's formula of one man plus one woman. The English word matrimony comes from the Latin term matrimonium. And this word is where we get our word marriage. Matrimonium comes from two Latin terms combined, mater and monium. And mater simply means mother. Monium is a suffix meaning action, state, or condition. So if you take these together, follow the logic of this, taken together, this brings something along the idea of mother-making or the condition of motherhood. So simply put, marriage between two persons of the same sex is not a religious uh, argument. It's not a political statement. It is simply a matter of definition and reason. Lost on our culture is this, that God has ordered marriage toward procreation, toward the creation of family. There is a lot of commentary stirring up a lot of discord in our country right now. Would you agree? We live in the epicenter of a cultural war, is what some people call it, around the definition of marriage, around gender issues, around what a family is should be, and sort of what the boundaries are. If you've been living under a rock, you may not have caught this. Otherwise, this is pretty common knowledge, right? Let me say this. The war that we are fighting, listen carefully, is not against flesh and blood. Many in this room have people who don't subscribe to the biblical view I just laid out. Your enemy is not your brother, sister, cousin, uncle, co-worker, neighbor, roommate, who is living a lifestyle that doesn't support what I just talked about. Therefore, the weapons that we use are not to look like the weapons of this world. Let me tell you the weapons that we use. The weapons we use are grace and truth. Sound argument, love for all as Jesus modeled. That said, let me say this. One term that's really curious, since we're talking about fear this morning, the fear of God... There's a curious term. Let me give you one more phobia that's, that's talked about often. Homophobic. Homophobic is, by definition, the fear of homosexuals. That's a label that has been given to those who don't affirm same-sex behavior. Correct? That you are homophobic. And I would strongly disagree with that. What I would say is this. Disagreement is not the same as fear. Disagreement is not the same as dislike. To follow the logic of this, if someone disagrees with my Christian worldview, they would be Christianophobic. They're not fearful of me, they just disagree with me. Can't we disagree and still love each other? 
Do not be taken in by the message of our day that says this. If someone opposes your worldview, they hate you. That couldn't be farther from the truth. You will see from my demeanor, my tone, the words that I say, this is a message being brought in love. I fear God, therefore I want to speak the truth. I want to speak the whole truth. This is a message being delivered in love. Along the same lines of fear, many who hold the biblical and rational position that God created male and female and bring them together in a sacred union called holy matrimony are fearful to speak out about this. And they are fearful because they will be bullied, they will be labeled, they will be shut down and abused for their stance. Curiously, the rainbow is a reassurance from God that he will show mercy and hold back punishment and wrath on sin in the form of a worldwide flood. A symbol and sign that God put in our midst as a sign of mercy has been hijacked in our culture as a sign of pride against God. When we say that we are going to live as family and lift up the family, recognize this is going to cost. It's going to cost to just simply speak the truth on this. You might be sitting in this room saying, I'm divorced. What about me? I'm struggling with same-sex attraction. What about me? I'm blowing it right now with my girlfriend or boyfriend, and I know it. What about me? I don't really hold to your Christian views. I haven't made up my mind on the Bible, or I have, and I think it's all foolishness. Is this serious for me? My invitation is absolutely Come sit with us for seven weeks and hear what the Bible has to say about it. We're not going to get to the totality of it, but I think we're going to get to the heart of it. Come ponder what God has revealed. What we're going to discuss is not only God's best for marriage, but God's grace in marriage. I couldn't help but just get choked up sitting back there singing the songs we just sang leading into this, knowing and having a front row seat on some of the marriage redemption that has gone on in this church. It's the beautiful thing about being in one place for the last 11 years. I've gotten to see the arc of your storylines and see God's redemption at work. Let me invite you to guard how not to listen to this series. Don't listen for someone else, especially your spouse. If you are prone to elbow your spouse at every point you think they should hear, put space between you like you do at the movies, right? Uh, just, just leave space. We have the ushers trained to give you a two-minute elbowing penalty, and we'll put you in the sin bin if you are elbowing your spouse. So don't do that. Number two, don't go spec hunting. I want you to walk in this room every Sunday morning for these next seven weeks and say, God, would you show me the log in my own eye? Would you show me how my views are unclear, not how my person, uh, you know, this other person who I'm arguing with about biblical marriage or any of that. Help me find what's wrong in my own life. Number three, don't claim that I've heard this before. James says that we are to meekly receive the implanted word. Besides all of this hearing, just because you've heard this before doesn't make you an expert at love. Just ask your spouse. If you don't believe it, just ask your spouse and say, is there any room that I can grow in? 
And when he or she pauses, that pause is, how do I answer this with grace and truth? That's what, that's what they're thinking. They're not going, hmm, I can't think of anything. I promise you. Here's another one. Please don't compare. Just as God has given each individual an identity and a unique set of skills, a unique set of gifts, a unique personal story, so it is with every married couple. I can assure you, every married couple in this room is rock solid at some things. They just excel at them. They're super good at them. And they are fragile as China in whole other realms of marriage. Every married couple has this sort of, you know, couple identity that God has given and gifted, and no one possesses it all. So it is a fool's errand. It is chasing the wind to sort of compare yourself to other couples around you. If you want to compare, compare to Jesus and his wife. That's it. That's who we get to compare to. Finally, this. Don't just listen. Receiving the word involves pondering, discussing, prayer, testing, and ultimately doing. James goes on to say this. You will be blessed in your doing of the word, not merely hearing the word. Those who do are the ones who are blessed. It says responding I do to holy matrimony, not saying I do. The goal is transformation, not more information. Jesus said in John, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am a living metaphor right now of what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about the finery and ideal classic picture of marriage and sort of all of its mystery and all the profound meaning that's there. And we're also going to get to sort of the, the scrubby, you know, unkept, just realness of what it is to be married in a fallen world. We're going to look at both of those. This is going to be intensely practical with homework each and every week. In fact, each week, I hope to give you this. This is how your notes are laid out. I want to give you a key truth. I want to give you a key practice. I want to give you a verse to memorize. And I want to give you some resources that may be helpful to you. With that, let's get started with this week. Each week, I want to highlight some aspect of holy matrimony. And I start with the fear of God because that's where the Bible starts for every Christian. And think about this. That's where it all went wrong in the garden. No fear of God's word, left turn, and all went sideways. If you are not yet married, let me say this, marriage is scary. I get this weird privilege of sitting with grooms right before they're about to walk out in front of all their friends and family and make a vow before God. I never do that unless I have sat with that couple for six weeks prior. There are at least two marriages in this room that I can think of that I did their wedding ceremony and I wore this exact suit and I got to see their exact faces. I go back and see my video of me. There's an interview question asking me how I feel right before my marriage and I have this tense forced smile like this. I am nervous as all get out. You know why that fear is there? That fear is not there. It was, had nothing to do with doubt about the woman I was about to marry. Had everything to do with the weightiness of what was about to take place. I would be deeply frightened for the groom if he were nonchalant on his wedding day. Hear me, young people who haven't said these words yet. And nod with me, those of you who have. Two little words alter 
the rest of your life, and they are, I do. When you say, I do, think about this, it affects every single day for the rest of your life, whether or not you stay together as a married couple. I do affects every day the rest of your life. So that's why it's weighty. That's why it is scary. There are at least two kinds of fear. There's terror and there's reverent respect. Both of these are appropriate for God. Listen for the gospel in these two aspects of fear. First, the bad news. I know it's a little hard to read, but just listen to it. Second Thessalonians 1, 6-9 says this. God is just. He will pay back trouble on those who trouble you. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power. The bad news is that God punishes criminals and we all stand condemned. When we think about the kind of God we worship, we realize that's actually good news. We want a God who punishes wrongdoing, who's holy and just and loves all things good. Now the good news, God took the punishment for lawbreakers because we could never survive. We would be destroyed for our ongoing sin clock that is ever accumulating. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. God presented him as a sacrificial, as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did not, uh, he, he did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. God's covering of grace means there no longer has to be fear of punishment. All that's left is reverential respect. First John 4.18, there's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Pastor and author Tim Keller says this, to be loved but not known is comforting, but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. To be fully known and truly loved, well, that's a lot like being loved by God. That's the love we have given to us by God. So, sorry, Katy Perry, it's not self-love first. It is God-love for the sinful self received. That is the starting point of marriage and love. So here's the key truth if you want to write it down. Fear God first and most. Fear God first and most. Listen to how foundational this is to all of life and watch carefully to see if there's any exception clause for those who are married. Psalm 111 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom all those who practice it have good understanding. Proverbs 1, seven: the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. And in Proverbs 9, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. 
When it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, it includes wisdom about marriage. We have to start with fearing God before we'll get an accurate picture of something He designed. Secondly, we seek first. A part of fearing God first and most is that we seek first. Matthew 6.33, but seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Guess what all these things includes? It includes your marriage. It really includes all of your relationships. All these things will be added to you as you seek God's kingdom and righteousness first. 1 Corinthians 10.31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, including being married, do all to the glory of God. Let me give you one more. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling except for those who are married. No. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling. 1 Thessalonians 2, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Isn't this Christianity 101? Fear God. Seek first the the kingdom of God. Live your life in obedience. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. I mean, these are foundational, basic components to being a Christian. And so they are for our marriages. Turn to Ephesians 5. You knew that we would turn to Ephesians 5 sometime in this marriage. We're going to start with it. This is a passage I read at almost every single wedding I've ever done. It probably draws the most angry looks... With, with almost no commentary yet, I can just read the second half of Ephesians chapter 5 and draw all kinds of angry looks from people. We're not going to dive into all of it this, this morning, but I just want to highlight something. Marriage isn't just invented by God. It actually belongs to God. He has a right. He has a claim to its designs, its purposes, its goals. He sets what a successful marriage looks like. Marriage is for our good, but first it is for God's glory. I was surfing recently with Travis, and every time I go out surfing, I do something. I find a fixed point on land, and I memorize where I am in relation to that, because I have stood on the beach, and I have watched the surf, and I have said, that's where I want to go surfing. There's a lot of rights right there. I'm a regular foot, so I want to face the wave. I'm going to go paddle out right there. I can see where the water's going back out in little channels. That's where I'm going to be. As I paddle out there, I get out there, I turn around, I look to a point, I go, okay, that house, those steps, that car, that beach umbrella, whatever. I find a fixed point for a very clear reason. As you're sitting out in the water, what's happening? There are currents that are moving you around. It's utterly imperceptible to you. You can't fathom how shocking it is to be out there and suddenly be way down the beach and have zero recollection of how you got there. It's because you are moving. Well, that's what a fixed point does. Hear me clearly now. Christ is the fixed point in marriage. Listen to Ephesians 5. I'm not going to read the whole passage. I just want to highlight some things. But listen for how Christ, it all relates back to Jesus. What's the box top of the puzzle? It's Jesus as husband, the church as the bride. So in Ephesians chapter 5, he says this. Before getting into the specifics of relationships, by the way, Paul points out 
our key truth, that fear of God is to be at the very beginning. Look at Ephesians 5.15. He says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And then skip down to verse 21. He says this, Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. One of the definitions of fear is reverent respect. So before, at the very beginning of this great passage, on all of the distinct and yet complementary roles of husband and wife, is this holy fear. Catch me. Reverent respect for Jesus is the foundation to build a marriage on. When a Christian couple says that Christ is at the center of our relationship, this is what it means. It means that we obey and take seriously the instruction of God. We're careful not to add or take away or treat as common this unique holy matrimony, this marriage, because life and death are at stake. If you go on to read the passage... It says wives are to submit to the Lord, are to submit as to the Lord. There's the fixed point. Husbands are to love as Christ loved the church. There's the fixed point. We are to nourish uh, the bride as Christ does the church. There's the fixed point. In each of the very specific commands for the roles of husband and wife, there is a fixed point. Why do we need a fixed point? Because we are drifting in currents, aren't we? We are constantly hearing things. We are constantly battling our own flesh, our own ideas, our own background, our own upbringing. And we need a fixed point to come back to and say, what is true? What's real? God, what do you say in this? I jotted down Hebrews eleven seven for you, but in Hebrews 11, catch this. In holy fear, Noah took God at his word And saved his family. It says, by faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. Oh, that we would have a generation of men who would model themselves and walk in the footsteps of Noah, hearing the warning, acting accordingly persevering until the ark is done and by faith saving their household. That's missing in our culture. It's missing in our churches. So the key truth is to fear God as husband and wife. If you want a key verse to memorize, it's simple. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. I should say it's simple to memorize. It's difficult to live out. In fact, it's impossible without The Holy Spirit. What's the key practice? The key practice is this. Worship with your spouse. What can this look like? It can look this way. Worship every week in your church. Worship each day in your house. Worship worship each hour in your heart. Keep in mind that if we need to practice something, it means we're not perfect at it yet. So when I say this is a key practice, it means that we are ever growing. It means that we are trying again. It means that we are repeating. It means that we are keeping at it. In Deuteronomy 4, chapter 10, the Lord is talking to Moses. He says, gather the people to me that I may 
Let them hear my words so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth and that they may teach their children so. This is something we learn and grow in. Part of what we're doing right now, by the way, I am speaking to those who get an A plus in worship every week with your spouse. I see many of, I see most of you every single week. And it's not because the band is really on point. It's not because Dave or someone else up here is just a, a really entertaining speaker. It's because you want to cultivate a fear for the Lord. You want to gather with God's people and you want to hear from Him. So specifically, how do I grow in this? Do what you're doing. Gather with God's people to hear from Him. That's Sunday morning. Secondly, hear God's Word. Satan doesn't take a day off, so don't take a day off from reading your Bible. Let your mind just be filled with God's Word. I regularly, throughout the day, marvel at how much I need clarity of thought. Finally, ask God for reverent respect. Jesus said, you have not because you ask not. You want to know that you're praying in God's will? Say, God, I don't awe, I'm not awed at your name like I probably should be. Would you help me with that? He's going to answer that. Ask God to cultivate in you what it is to fear him. As Deuteronomy says, learn to fear God, all the days of your life. Let me give you two quick resources that you can jot down. One is called The Knowledge of the Holy. This is by an author named A.W. Tozer. It's a heavy, weighty book. You'll have to read paragraphs and sentences and then reread them if you're like me. This is a book that has stood the test of time. It's been uh, a remarkable help to many people. A second book is really practical, really simple, really straightforward. It's an easy read. And I think it would do wonders in our families to see mom and dad reading about family worship. How can we grow in family worship? It just shows a humble heart that's wanting to cultivate. God, is there something more in our family worship that isn't there? That's by a guy named Donald Whitney. I only have it on audiobook or else I'd let you borrow it from me. I want to close off this morning and hopefully each week with a little part of our message that's just the idea of starting well. This is the idea that we have many, many people who are right in these years leading up to the decision of who they will marry, should God bless with marriage. And to get your head around, what, what can I be doing right now? How can I start well? Uh, for those of us who've been married a long time, here's what I think is going to happen. I think the starting well component to it is something that some of us who may have gotten off course on some areas, we can say, oh yeah, we used to do that. We used to be really intentional about that, in fact, and we've gotten away from it. So I think the start well is for those of you contemplating marriage, those of you dating, those of you engaged, but also for those of you who are already married. Start well is this. Get set on your worldview. Worldview is something that's sort of a lens that you look through, and it's comprised of some really key questions. You take the answer to these questions and they comprise the lens with which you view life. Here's a couple of them. Who holds the final call in your life? That's the question of authority. That's going to help shape your worldview. 
Here's another one. Do my actions matter? That's a question of morality. Am I going to be held accountable to someone other than myself? Does it really matter what I do? Here's another one. Is this all there is to life or is there something more to live for? That's a question of destiny. And let me give you one more. Why am I here? Is there a purpose or am I just here? And there is no deeper reason than the fact that I'm alive. That's a question of purpose. Jesus said this, whoever believes in me will never die. I believe Jesus. I've built my life on that simple promise. Did I have periods of wrestling with it both before and after being a follower of Jesus? Absolutely. But my worldview could be summed up in some ways in that. He has the final say on that. I believe my, my actions matter. I believe I am going to live forever, not shut out from the presence of the Lord, but in intimate relationship with the Lord. And I believe that my life has a purpose because Jesus told me my life has a purpose. Let me say this, that once you get settled on your worldview, if you are a Christian, and this works, I think, for not a Christian, but I can't speak to that. But it actually clarifies so many things. Consider if you have a Lord and Savior and it's Jesus, it clarifies at least the following. Ready? Ready? Here, here we go. Date only someone who is a Christian. I can't imagine having the most important person in my life, the final authority in my life, being married to someone who doesn't share that same conviction. Because we would be going in different directions. Don't just date someone who's a Christian in name only, but in life. So that is, look to the fruit of who they are. Infatuation can last five minutes or 18 months. Get the input of those around you and say, I see nothing but fruit of the Spirit, love of Jesus coming out of this guy. Am I, am I blind or not? Isn't it true that those around the situation who aren't blinded by love, they can say, you're not accurate, actually. <laughs> or... Yeah, I see the same thing. It's really affirming. Number two, this goes for both guys and gals, but let me speak specifically to the guys. Go beyond the external. Go beyond the external. Proverbs 31.30 says, Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain. Catch this, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. There's that word again. A woman who has reverent respect that honors God with her life. That's the one to go after, guys. Here's another one. Is the person that you're dating not under authority? Here's my dating advice for you. Run. Run away. It may not be that they're never marriage ready, but I can assure you they are not marriage ready right now. The way you can tell whether someone's under authority or not, who has the final say in their life? The one who's not under authority badmouths the boss and, doesn't, and, and does everything they can to do whatever they want as long as they're not in boss's view and it won't hurt them too bad. The one who's not under authority doesn't come and sit under biblical teaching, doesn't receive any input, bashes the word of their parents. That guy or girl may be treating you great right now, but if you haven't noticed, things change. 
What if you fall out of favor with that person? What if you disappoint? You have now given your heart to someone who is a dictator of their own life. They answer to no one else. They seek no input from anyone else. This is going to turn out bad. Here's another one. Out of respect for Jesus, build one another up first and most as siblings in Christ. Is this hard for people who are in love? Yes. But invest in them as a sibling in Christ. Build them up in that way. And tied into this is a last one. Out of fear of God, vow to remain pure in your dating life. Listen to the fear of God that I hope to put into you from the scriptures. Colossians 3, 5. Put to death, therefore... What is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. 1 Corinthians says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? whom you have from God, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. Fear God. Look at these words. Put to death. Flee. Start well by practicing fidelity to your God before fidelity to your spouse. Hear me really clearly. For those of you saying, what if I've blown it? What if I'm actively right now blowing it? A simple word for you, friends. Repent. Run to the arms of Jesus. Ask for his forgiveness. Receive his grace. And then vow to not do it. Walk in that. Let me invite the band to come up right now. I want to close with a passage that goes well beyond marriage, but but catch this, it encompasses marriage as well. What I've been painting a picture for you are not necessarily marriage-specific passages. What I hope to show you each and every week is the Bible has much to say, way more than someone read at your wedding. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 says this, Therefore, my beloved... As you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, listen to this, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things, including being married, without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. Whether you are at this church, leave this church, or move away, like so many are doing from the Silicon Valley, I beg of you, Get into a church that preaches God's word. You know why? Every single Sunday, there is a marriage seminar waiting for you married people. As God's word is opened up, 
You are being spoken the words of blessing and curse, the words of life and death regarding your most sacred and fundamental relationship here on this earth, and that is with your husband or wife. Let me pray. God, we know that where your word is read and followed, life is sure to spring up. Protection from harm is promised. God, that more than just surviving, we walk through this life as more than conquerors. Meaning that not only is sin vanquished in our life, not only is sin robbed from our marriages, but formerly broken marriages are used to bring life and healing and strength to other marriages. God, this is born out in this church family, and we give you praise for that. God, for those who are married in this room, would you give us a renewed grief over ways and areas that we've compromised, that we've disrespected who you are by how we live? Would you give us a renewed passion and a renewed hunger to seek out what it means to fear you all the days of our life. God, for those who are contemplating marriage, for those who marriage seems years and years off, would you begin to cultivate and stir and grow in us things right now that will take fruit in another season? Would you help us to listen to and seek out the godly counsel of those around us? Would you guard us, God, from the voices around us in culture that would scream opposite things and give us false labels for what you've taught us? In Jesus' name, amen.